Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks, on today's show, we are talking about the inefficiency problem featuring Blair Ends. Ron, how's it going? Going great, Ed. It's so much politer than the effing debate. <laughs> yes. Well, that's because he's a marketer, Ron. Yeah, I he's know. He's a marketer. Know. We're just, know. you know. Better branding, better branding. <laughs> uh, know, it's not every... and technology people. We're, we call it the effing debate. Yeah. But you know, it's not every day, Ed, that you get a headline guest like this uh, with two days notice. So really want to thank him. It wasn't a last minute pick. I've, I've had this in my stack forever. So yeah, thrilled to be able to talk to Blair today. Well, let me read him in so we can get get the conversation going. Blair Ends is the Win Without Pitching founder and CEO and the author of The Win Without Pitching Manifesto and Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. He is the co-host, along with David C. Baker, of the podcast The Two Bobs Conversations on the Art of Creative Entrepreneurship. Welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise, Blair Ends. Uh, gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to be back. Thank you. Well, we're going to be talking today about your blog post, The Inefficiency Problem. Is that how you say it? Inefficient, you know, it's, it's kind of a portmanteau. So give me yeah, your pronunciation. I, I, hit the, uh, I hit the O on it. So I've invented a word, inefficiency. Inefficiency. Um, I've okay. combined the words innovation and efficiency into one word. Love that. Love that. Well, let me ask a, a real simple question then. What is the inefficiency problem? Well, the inefficiency, let me start with the principle. The inefficiency okay. principle says that innovation and efficiency are mutually opposable goals. You cannot increase one without decreasing the other. The inefficiency problem is to be ignorant of the principle and to think that you can indeed um, be more efficient, in uh, increase efficiency and innovation at the same time, like you might drive a car in two different directions at the same time. And it's funny, Ron and I last week talked about the laws of systems thinking. And one of the laws of systems thinking is you can have your cake and eat it too, but not at the same time. Oh, and, that's great. And, that, and that's exactly a reflection of what this problem is. And, you know, the, the, this notion that and in, in manufacturing, it manifests itself this way. You cannot increase the quality of a manufactured good and at the same time decrease the cost of the same good. Not possible. You know, over time, you want that to happen. But why is it that that marketing and I would broaden this out, Blair, this isn't just marketing. This is all professional organizations get Correct. caught in this trap. Why can't they see this? They can't see it because, um, well, there's a few different reasons. Number one, it, it isn't intuitive. Um, and uh, number two, um, people, I think there's a there's a gross misunderstanding of the resources required to innovate. See, innovation is, and w when I was messing with the word, so you, you had me on a few years ago to talk about my most recent book, Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. And this, this principle first appeared in that book, and I've since written 
uh, a blog post about it and talked about it on various podcasts. But it it came to me when I was um, writing on value based pricing, um, and and I was I was you know I, I'm a listener to this podcast. I've I've heard the conversations on the effing debate for years. Peter Drucker was like in my house when I was a kid. My father was a cop, and he was promoted into management. He was effectively an NCO. Um, in the area of commercial crime. So he started studying business for his own management purposes. And then because he was, he was busting corporate criminals. Um, so Drucker lived in my house for a long time. And then he kind of went away and I started listening to you guys and I got back into Drucker and I'm familiar with the effing debate. This idea that Drucker said, and I, the first example I can find is 1963, I think in a Harvard Business Review article, and then it's appeared in some of his books. And Drucker put a, efficiency and effectiveness at kind of polar opposites. And I, I thought when I was exploring value-based pricing, I thought I came back to this and I thought, you know, it's not the cost, the cost of efficiency is not effectiveness. It's actually innovation. I'll come back to this, but I've since realized that's incorrect. It's not like Drucker was wrong. I've I've gone back and reread his stuff and he's profoundly right in ways that I didn't even appreciate until now, but there is a second cost to the focus on efficiencies. And that is that you give up innovation. And the reason to, to take a long winded way to answer your question, the, the reason these two are polar opposites to each other is that innovation is inherently messy and wasteful. It, and efficiency is the elimination of waste. So you cannot, and this is a cultural problem. We'll probably talk about this a little bit more, when I throw this principle and problem out at people, they have a visceral reaction. Like creative people tend to intuit it and say, yeah, I get that. That's right. People who are more, so creative people being, let's characterize them as innovators. They tend to agree with this principle when they, when they hear it. People who tend more towards efficiencies, let's call them optimizers, um, they tend to reject it. And one of the reasons they rejected, I think, is their definition of innovation <clears throat> is different. It's um, if you're an innovator, sorry, if you're an optimizer, anything different, anything new seems to strike you as an innovation and as innovation. But I really had to get to the core of the, you know, I had to arrive at the definition of innovation. And uh, I spent some time searching and I had to, I had to arrive at one. And uh, if you don't, if you don't subscribe to this definition of innovation that I use, then you could, in theory, reject this principle. So, do you want me to hit you with the definition of innovation? Yes, absolutely. And this is this is the one from um, Nick Silicorn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now I've got to read it. So. Oh, all right. Well, I've got it right here. So let me let me let me say this: innovation is executing an idea that addresses a specific challenge and creates value for both the company and the customer. And that, that last part, I mean, there are five different elements there that make that definition, I think, a really powerful one. But that idea that value has to accrue to both parties, that to me is the key to innovation in business. Because you can optimize and create some value for the organization, but if the customer doesn't participate in it, I don't think it's true innovation. So if you subscribe to that, theory or that definition of innovation. Um, and we all know what efficiency is. It's the elimination of waste. And 
uh, we understand that innovation is inherently messy and wasteful, then these two things are clearly opposite of each other. Now, there are other objections. I'm sure the two of you will hit me with them and I'll do my best to address them. Actually, we probably agree more than we disagree on, on this, but the biggest thing is, that, is what we find, and I'm curious to get your reaction to this, is the, the Lean Six Sigma crew who say that, oh, what we're starting off with, we're starting off with, you know, with, with, with customer in mind, but then every single thing that they tend to propose tends to be about the reduction of cost inside the organization and has nothing to do with that last part of the definition, which is end customer. You know, speaking of Six Sigma, you think of Jack Welch and when, when he was at his heyday, he was the, he was the most lauded CEO out there. And even afterwards, when he, he wrote his book, um, and GE, what, what, what was their, their, their trademark, their, uh, um, tagline was, was it innovate or innovation? Anyways, it was a company that was built around innovation and, um, he, for, various reasons, a lot of them financial engineering, getting out of some businesses into others, realizing that GE is effectively a banking company. He, he, uh, he, he drove these enormous results in that organization, but he killed the culture of innovation. Somebody I know, an innovation consultant who worked with GE and was on their innovation council for years said, GE has gone 15 years without any new marketplace innovation since Jack Welsh left. Uh, Welch. Um, so that, you know, he, he's lauded for all the success and quite rightly lauded for the financial success, but GE culturally paid a cost for its focus on efficiency through Six Sigma. The other thing you mentioned in the article, and I wanted to get a little bit more clarity on this, is this, that you say that some people who reject this notion can think of times when they did innovate and reduce cost at the same time. And then that's what kind of clouds their judgment to think that, oh, we can do that always and forever. Yeah, and I love um, constraint-driven exercises as a creative way to solve problems. So you take a scenario, a situation, a problem that you're, you're faced with, and you impose uh, a constraint. And I do this with uh, my audience a lot. So I'll say, imagine running your business under this constraint. And so one of the constraints might be, you can't sell or track time. One of my favorite constraints is you can never sell your business and you can never retire. Use that with business owners. So I hit you with a constraint and I say, imagine operating your business under that constraint. And your first reaction is always, I can't do this. And your second reaction comes pretty quickly, usually within a minute. And that is, oh, I can see how I could operate under this constraint, but it wouldn't be good. And then your third reaction, after thinking about it for just three or four minutes, you start to see ways that not only could you operate under this constraint, you could create, you could make, you can innovate, you can create progress. You, it forces you to rethink how you've been thinking about the problem. So that's a great example. And so a, a common restraint is, or constraint is time or money. You impose a time constraint on somebody who's working on a problem or a financial constraint, and often the outcome is innovation. The challenge, though, is this principle and problem. This becomes an issue of culture, a culture in the organization. A culture of constraints does not produce innovation. It reduces the output of innovation. So when it's a culture of always operating operating under time constraints or financial constraints, 
there is no freedom to move. There's no freedom to fail. And that freedom to fail, time, money, people, et cetera, that is an absolute requirement when it comes to innovation. So this is really a cultural issue. And at some point in in an organization that has a culture of efficiency seeking too far to the efficiency end of the spectrum, the innovators leave. Yeah, one of the things I have said before is that 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 the moment that a business begins to worry far more about efficiency than it does about effectiveness or innovation is the moment it begins to die. Yeah, I get that. And back to you know Drucker and his idea of the effectiveness, like at the nut of the way he described the problem, it's a slightly different problem. It's that he basically cites the Pareto principle and says, okay, you can be effective, but we all know that it's really just ten to twenty percent of the things that you work on that produce the greatest number, greatest amount of value in the organization. And his observation is, I just see managers trying to be efficient across all of these problems, none of which are, you know, areas of like massive value creation. Yeah. And of course he wrote a book called The Effective Executive, not The Efficient Executive. So, well, we're already up against our time. Want to remind our listeners that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We also have a Patreon channel that's out there, patreon.com slash TSOE. And at a certain level, you can get a shout out like Geraldine Carter did at Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Check her out at Geraldine Carter. And now a word from our sponsors. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about the inefficiency principle with Blair Ends. And Blair, I, I cracked up when you wrote that you've been working on this for six years. It's your most inefficient piece of writing. And that's exactly how I feel about this topic. 
Um, let me ask you this, since you bring up this polarization that, you know, if it's, you can't drive a car in two directions, I often said that if you're more efficient at doing something, it will not lead to more effectiveness. But if you're more effective at doing something, it will eventually, like Ed's point with quality, lead to more efficiency. Yeah. What's your reaction to that? I, I, I'll swip it, switch it to innovation. I think they're largely interchangeable on this, topics, on this topic. Um, one of the outcomes of innovation is often efficiencies. It's rarely that it's rare that the opposite is true, that an outcome of efficiency is innovation. It does happen sporadically, but again, it's a cultural issue over time, over the averages, um, just the, the culture of the organization, it goes to one end of the spectrum or the other. And it, it tends in any growing organization in particular, the culture of the organization tends towards efficiency seeking over time. Right. As, especially as it grows and gets more. Yeah. You've got a great line on that too. We'll get to that. Um, I liked how you went through the process of defining innovation, but you know, one of the things that even Peter Drucker says this, and boy, do I hate to depart from Drucker, but he says, efficiency is doing things right. Effectiveness is doing the right things. That's not true. Yeah. Efficiency makes no judgment about whether something's right. It's a mindless ratio. <laughs> Outputs divided by inputs. It's always a ratio. It doesn't make judgments about, are we doing things right? Let alone doing the right things. It's just about the amount of waste in the doing. Right. Right. The throughput of inputs yeah, yeah to outputs. Uh, I mean, you know, and a, a ratio is simply mindless. Um, there's another concept here that I think is even broader than business because economists taught me this. Thomas Sowell and others among them, but economists have been saying for centuries, there's no such thing as generic efficiency. It all depends on two things, what your purpose or your objectives are and how much you're willing to spend. Otherwise, how do you explain the Golden Gate Bridge? We could, we could just throw up a military slab. <laughs> yeah. And it, it would hold the same weight and you wouldn't have to paint the damn thing every day. Because it rusts, uh, it'd be a heck of a lot more efficient, but mm, wouldn't be as exciting. That's you know that's um, there are a lot of people out there lamenting the loss of culture in their in our um, physical institutions and 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 the and the, and the uh, physical infrastructure that we build these architecture, days. Architecture, architecture, architecture. You look at a bridge, the efficiency of a bridge. You're measuring the output relative to the input on the utility. You're not measuring that on the softer things of beauty of the of the other uh kind of emotional contributions to value not just the the uh, economic utility of the bridge yeah. what is the economic value of the beauty of the bridge well you can probably do some sort of math on its contribution to tourism etc its contribution to the overall aesthetic of the city but economists don't want to have that conversation yeah I, I agree. Uh, I mean, say, you could say the same thing about the Sydney Opera House, right? I mean, that's it's just iconic. Some of these things that we build. Um, you know, you you did a show with Jonathan Stark once where you guys traded your favorite definitions of strategy, and I thought that was just great because strategy is another one of those topics that makes my head explode. But I just wanted to dump on you our favorite definition. I think I can speak for Ed. This is our favorite definition of strategy, and it comes from Dr. Jules Goddard, who we've had on the show two or three yep. times. 
And I love this. He says, strategy is the rare and precious skill of staying one step ahead of the need to be efficient. (laughs) To me, that's gold because that encompasses innovation, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, You know, I'm an advisor to independent creator firms and um, they were often hired to address profitability problems. And the other day, uh, a a large agency client asked, um, said she's getting pressure from above from corporate office to increase profitability. What, what can I do to help costs? And I was so dismissive on costs. It's like, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to swear on this podcast. I don't, I don't care about your costs. Like there are marginal gains to be, you know, to be had on costs. A, it's not my purview. I don't know anything about it, but like, if you could look at the, if you could look at a, a pricing model instead, and you, you have, you have room to be all extremely inefficient. If you can move from selling time, and I don't know, I'm preaching to the choir here, not just YouTube, but your audience, but if you can move from selling time to selling value, what's really interesting is some people that I talk to who can't get their head around the idea of value-based pricing, they say, well, like, how do I scope it? Like, how do I, and uh, my answer is, if the delta between uh, potential cost and value to be created, the price that's a function of the value to be created, it, it's, so it should be so big that when you look at it because you think you need to scope it, you realize, oh, I don't need to scope at this at all. I could be off by a factor of two or three on my costs, and this still makes sense. And if you're operating in that efficiency-driven mindset um, that's cost-based, and those two things are tied to each other, uh, then it's really hard to imagine this world where you're getting paid so much that you only have to do a rudimentary analysis of your cost to make sure that it's still profitable. But that's effectively what happens when you move to value-based pricing in the right organization, in the right market. Right. I mean, you wrote a great another great paper called The Complex Battle for Margin. And I'll tell you, as a former recovering and repentant cost accountant every day and cost accountants foisted more chaos on the world than anything. Um, it, it, it just, the dirty little secret, especially in professional firms is customers and projects don't have costs. The firms have costs. So if you think about it, what we're trying to do is we're trying to allocate non-cash costs and just make these arbitrary associations and, and allocations to a specific customer or project of a customer. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. It's the it, need to measure something, right? It's like the joke about the the drunk looking for his key, car keys under the street lamp, yep. not because he left them there, but because the light's better over there. And so we see that all the time. And you know, the larger an organization gets, I made this point already, the more the culture of it tends towards efficiency seeking. And these efficiency seekers, they need to measure something, and very often they're measuring the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. It, you think about a startup. A startup is a, is just chaos. It's a nebula of like a star being born. It's just like an explosion of energy and ideas. There's really just this idea that we might create something that would create value for um, a customer in the marketplace and our organization, you get validation of that idea. It's a lot of people together, or sort of it's a small number of people together, usually young, very energetic, working late nights. There are very little systems. You're trying to make something for the first time. 
it is pure chaos. It is pure innovation. And then once they get marketplace validation, as the organization starts to grow, now they need to add the systems and the processes and the software, et cetera, that can turn that potential into profit. And so I talk to owners of creative firms about this all the time. In the beginning, like it's just creative people tend to be innovative and not very efficient. So they create this thing, they get some validation, it catches fire. There's a lot of late nights. Um, there's a lot of pizza being eaten in the office and people sleeping on couches. Um, and when the business gets traction, usually the first adult hire in a creative firm, which is a really innovative business, is the senior finance person. And the senior finance person comes along and says, okay, kids, I'm going to bring some rules. We're going to turn this potential into profit. And if they didn't hire that senior finance person, if they didn't start to bring some efficiencies into the, into the organization, that potential would never turn into profit. But in the beginning, that person, even though they're the adult in the room, they're kind of a pained minority. So you grow, you grow, you grow. But the larger you grow, the more systems you need. You need middle management. You need software, et cetera. And the adults hire more adults. And at some point, the culture's, okay, now everybody, we're going to track time. And we've got all these ratios we've got to hit. And the culture swings, it moves over time towards the efficiency end of the spectrum. And I'm sometimes accused of throwing efficiency and efficiency seekers under the bus. That's not my intent at all. I simply want to point out that these two things resist or sorry, reside in tension. And they are, and like my podcast co-host, David C. Baker is fond of saying, not all tension needs to be resolved. There's tension is what holds up a bridge. So because it resides in tension, it doesn't need mean that it needs to be resolved, but the organization is in tension between these two poles. Each department within the organization is somewhere else between these two poles. Each individual in the department is resides somewhere on those on that spectrum between these two poles. And over time, as an organization grows, everything moves towards the efficiency seeking end of the spectrum. Um, I, my theory is, I can't prove this. I think it's a little bit like um, waste is, a, I, I, I think more and more of the resources of an organization as it grows are required to fight the chaos. But as you kill the chaos, the waste, you also kill the ability to innovate. So I'm not saying efficiency is bad and we shouldn't move toward the efficiency seeking end of the spectrum. I'm simply saying, beware of the trade-offs. Absolutely. It's like bureaucracy enters, I think, and then it just kind of creeps over everything. Um, you've got a great line in here. I've never seen this before from, is it uh, Jay Shiat from Shiat Day, one of the founders? Jay Shiat, Shiat Day. Shiat, yeah. Shiat, yeah. How big can we get before we get bad? Yeah. That's the what, million dollar question, isn't what it? What a great question. What a great question. Yeah. And that's a, that's a creative director from an agency who made famous for his work on Apple computer back in the day. And when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, one of the first things he did was fired whatever ad agency they had and he brought Shia Day back. So it was one of the most innovative agencies of all time. And he intuited this inefficiency principle that the, the bigger we get, the, uh, the less innovative we become. 
Have you seen agencies overcome procurements, fetidization of, of efficiency? I mean, like, you know, Tim Williams talks about magic logic work, maybe set up different brands like Ogilvy did with their, what is it? Their Redworks factory and their ideation brand. Yeah. Um, agencies struggle with this just as everybody else does. And I think, you know, somebody who serves that market as Tim does, Tim, Tim tends to serve the larger markets. Um, I, uh, my organization tends to serve the independents and the, that market right now is, I see it as fully bifurcated where you have, Hmm. um, more than half of all of the ad agency and marketing agency revenue is dominated by a number of global agencies that are owned by six different holding companies. These holding companies are efficiency-seeking organizations. The other half of the market, um, they're this wide array of differently specialized independent entities um, that have just an innumerable number of combination of s- specialisms. Um, one might focus on AI for, you know, AI driven something for a specific vertical. Uh, one might be UX design for um, professional services, uh, whatever. The spe- specialisms are infinite. And so it's really hard these days to speak universally about the ad agency or creative agency market because they're really two different markets yeah. in that. Yeah. 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 I, I totally get that. Accounting is the same way. You've got the big four and then basically you've got everything else, but well, Blair, this is flying by. Unfortunately, we're up against our break and folks would like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel. Like Ed said, that channel is now sponsored by 90 minds. Be kind to your mind, hire one, check their workout at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials commercials plus bonus content go to patreon.com slash tsoe subscribe now and be free you're worth it streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com you 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise. We are talking to Blair Enns, whose blog post, The Inefficiency Problem, is what the subject of our conversation is today. And in this post, he, he tells us great stories. He says, in 2017, Jerry Seinfeld and co-founder, co-writer of the most successful TV show in history, was interviewed by Harvard Business Review, and he was asked about his process. And they asked him, quote, was there a more sustainable way to do it? Could McKinsey or someone have helped you find a better model? Seinfeld responds, who's McKinsey? Harvard Business Review says, it's a consulting firm. Seinfeld asks, are they funny? Harvard Business Review, no. <laughs> what a great story, Blair. And th- that leads into the conversation that you have pick up where you were with Ron, with this, this notion of the, the organizations seeking one another out in this efficiency, I don't know, race to the bottom, even though they think it's a race to the top. Yeah. And just there's one last line in that exchange where Seinfeld says, um, well, if they're not funny, then I don't need them. I don't want them. It's not about efficiency. And he, he d- goes on to describe how inefficient his process is. Uh, but back to the two-sided, the uh, two different markets of ad agencies, effectively. So you've got the independents. They're they're um, you know they're closer to the startup end of the spectrum. Not that they're startups necessarily, but they're generally smaller. They're entrepreneurial driven. So they're entrepreneurial organizations. Entrepreneurs tend to. It's not universally true, but they tend to the more innovative end of the spectrum. And the holding companies are effectively banks that own these independents. So holding companies, uh, and this doesn't just apply in ad agencies. You look at it in pharma, you look at it in large soccer teams, et cetera. At some point you get so big, you just lose the inability to innovate. So you buy it, right? How do how do holding companies innovate? They buy small startup agencies and the small startup, not necessarily the startup, but they buy an independent agency and the independent agency, the owner cashes out, goes to work for the big holding company. They're told you're going to have a certain degree of operational freedom. And then one day they get a call from somebody in New York. It's not even there. Can't even find this person on the org chart, but they work in finance somewhere in the holding company. And they've just done an analysis on your headcount per your square foot per head. And you're told that you're at 2.3 or whatever the measure is, and you need to get down, get it down to this point. So we're moving you in with another agency. You don't even, you've never heard this person before. And so the innovation gets crushed out of that firm. The innovators leave, they go start other firms and the cycle just repeats. You see it in pharma at some point, pharma companies, it's just easier to buy these other startup businesses that are doing the research. You see it in companies like in football teams like Manchester United, Manchester City, et cetera. Yeah, they still have academies. They're still growing players, but they just buy what they need, right? That culture of innovation is in terms of like creating talent that's gone. And you see it, you see it all over the place. You see it in software companies, dare I say, as the person who worked for Sage here, and 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 Apple being them part of that too. Sometimes they're not as innovative as they think, and they're also terrible at integrating companies after they purchase them. Beats was a disaster. I I think Amazon is the classic example of like how does Amazon do it? Um, and uh, so how does Amazon get so big to be a, a company in excess of a trillion dollars and still retain a culture of innovation? And I, I don't have any inside information on the 
what goes on in Amazon. But many of my clients have done work for Amazon, and I've heard repeatedly that they refer to themselves as a federation of startups. And if you look at, you know, the Amazon's gotten to the size that they are in part because Jeff Bezos, when they went public over 25 years ago, he said, we're not going to show a profit for 20 years. We're going to reinvest all the profits back into the organization. So they've got some really big winners, right? They've got um, FBA fulfillment by Amazon. They got AWS. These are cash cows and there are other cash cows in the business. And my, my hypothesis is that, um, and I, uh, the, the stories seem to bear this out, that these uh, really successful large entities in Amazon, they probably have cultures of efficiency seeking because they are very profitable. They're very well-run businesses and they throw off that cash. That cash gets invested in other startups. They start businesses, they buy businesses. And I think what Jeff Bezos, one of the many things he did very well is he he uh, allowed these other small, let's call them startups, to the culture of the startups to not be infected, in air quotes, by the culture of the large efficiency-seeking or- organizations, parts of Amazon, like AWS. And to me, the trillion-dollar question about Amazon moving forward is, can Andy Jassy, who came from running AWS and almost certainly has to have, and I, I don't know whether he does or not, but my guess is he himself leans to the more efficiency-seeking end of the spectrum. I suspect that under his guidance, Amazon will move more towards the efficiency-seeking end of the spectrum. They'll be more profitable over the next 10 years. They'll distribute more back to the shareholders. But that that specialness that grew Amazon, at some point, it's going to go away. It's inevitable. It happens to every organization. And I think Amazon has really pulled off a feat by staying as innovative as they are for as long as they have. Yeah, I want to get your reaction to this. I, I've, I've one company I work with had a, an internal expression, and it, it it wasn't meant to be funny, but it, it always struck me as funny. They said, at such and such company, the ROI spreadsheet is mightier than the sword. Yeah, <laughs> hands up. Who wants to work there? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, of course, my question is always this: Has anyone done the ROI on the ROI spreadsheet? Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you, them. It, you must you must be able to prove that you doing all of this is of benefit, right? Because I don't know all the ROI spreadsheets I've ever been a part of has been reality multiplied by dreams, anyway. And and it's not like you know ROI as a topic is not a valid topic, and it's not something that we should be looking at. But it's like how many different you know how caught up do we get in the measurement of things? Yeah, it, well, it's it's just it's really a, a cult of measurement and a cult of efficiency. I think that that has pervaded a lot of the inner hallways of a lot of these companies. Yeah, and you know, like I said earlier, I don't mean to throw efficiency seekers under the bus, but clearly you can sense my bias here, right? I come from this world of independent creative firms where where it's just innovation all day long, and then to see as they grow, as they get acquired, we're working with a couple of firms now that have recently been acquired or maybe one quite a while ago, just, just getting paid by these organizations is a nightmare. And it's not just a nightmare for us. It's a nightmare for the client that we're working with that brings us in. The fact that they have to go to battle so that we can get paid, so that we can start the engagement on time. And they're just so powerless to affect anything. You know. They've got the responsibility for the results. They bring in the outside experts, us to help, but we can't start until we get paid. And 
you know, the person in charge of paying us or the machine in charge of paying us has no interest in paying us so that, that their colleague can go ahead and achieve the results. Their results, they're, they're measured on holding on to cash as long as possible, letting go as, as little bit as possible. That's why I some call, sometimes call the car, uh, accounts payable departments the payment prevention teams. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that, 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 that's their goal. But um, so with regard to, uh, you know, applying this to, to it, and, and really, Blair, broaden this out. I mean, you, you have, uh, you're written, writing specifically for the, the marketing agencies and the, the independents. But I, but I have to tell you, in, in my experience, and I think Ron will bear me out on this, this is a far more universal problem. This is oh, not agree. just where 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 you're sitting. So yeah, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So we just I, I think once you um once you once you think about this principle and you accept it, and it may take you a while. You might reject it, and there are a few reasons that you might reject it. We've talked about a couple of them. There are more that we haven't talked about it. But w- once you get your head around it, you can't unsee this. You will see this everywhere. And as a business owner or a manager, a business owner in particular. You will see this. You will see almost every decision that you make through the lens of this innovation efficiency trade-off. Um, it's just universal, and you know, as is Drucker's idea of efficiency versus effectiveness. I think those trade-offs are universal, and it's not specific to the world I serve, but in the world I serve, there is this kind of epicenter of this clash of these two goals, and that is the function of marketing procurement. So large, it's um, it's the procurement function, the function in client organizations that procure the services of marketing agencies. And yeah, there's always room for efficiencies uh, in any kind of uh, agency in the marketing activities of any organization. And a lot of those efficiencies, it's quite right for procurement or anybody else in the organization to go after those efficiencies. I see this inefficiency problem taking place at the, at the when the procurement people try to procure creativity, which is a function of innovation, effectively. How do we get the idea? How do we pay less for the ideas? So they erode, erode, erode. They negotiate away. They get it down to an hourly rate. They put pressure on that rate. They stretch out payment terms. They get whatever win they can, oblivious to the fact that they are killing that which they're buying. And some of them aren't oblivious to it. Some of them are keenly aware of it, but it doesn't matter because their incentives, their department, it's not optimized to the goals of the organization. This is another thing I've come to realize is I think in any department, in any organization, the people in that department are optimized to the goals of the department and not the organization. The one exception is the CEO, maybe a few others in the C-suite. It's a tenet of systems thinking that when you optimize a subsystem, you sub-optimize the greater system. And so even the procurement professional who knows that they are maybe impairing the organization over the long term by driving efficiencies into the purchasing of ideas and advice doesn't matter their bonus is based on savings right as my co-host likes to say in one of his most famous stories walt walt wouldn't we're behind here wouldn't snow white and the four dwarves just be just as good as 
<laughs> but we are up against our break. I want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise. Show notes, previews to upcoming shows. want to remind you that this third break is sponsored by my employer, Sage, and now from our sponsors. Birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about the inefficiency problem with Blair Ann's and Blair. You were talking about procurement. It just reminded me of Tim Williams saying, if, if you don't want to go through procurement, don't sell things that people that can be procured, <laughs> yeah. which is, which is great advice, but I don't know how you implement it. But anyway, you've got a great podcast called 20% the marketing procurement podcast that you do with Leah power. And you try and answer the question, how do you procure creativity without killing it on that podcast? You had Rory Sutherland on, I think it was May 17th podcast of this year. And he said this, we've incentivized ourselves into irrelevancy. You kind of compared it. He called it transaction capitalism, which is an interesting term. And he compared it to a, a marriage. And I guess you guys were co- contrasting the hourly billing with the, you know, the way that agencies used to be paid the commission system. But what was, I, I wanted to get your reaction to that because I wasn't able to see you when he said that, but what do you think about we've incentivized ourselves into irrelevancy? Well, I actually, it, it was such a profound part of the conversation that I, it stuck with me for a few weeks and then I wrote a post about it. Um, I just, I found it so profound. This, this, first of all, this idea of relational capitalism versus transactional capitalism. If you look at the history of ad agencies where 
it used to be a 15% commission. So we were in this together for a year and usually a year turned into multiple years. They were longstanding relationships where the agency would get paid 15% of the total media spend and they would allocate that 15% to the various functions in the organization. And Rory's point was, you know, it's a relationship and, you know, one year it might feel, the client might feel like, I kind of feel like I overpaid you this year. Um, but last year you brought me these ideas, you did these things and, and you created all of this extra value. And so over time, it was this give and take relationship that was a lot like a marriage. We're in this relationship together. It's got to be mutually beneficial. And at some point, the, um, the media commissions went away about the same time that procurement breached the wall into marketing. It really was the last bastion of the organization where procurement did not have a say. And when I started my business, when without pitching in the early 2000s, I was kind of listening into the, the conversations. How do we get a procurement would say, how do we get a seat at the table? Then they got a seat at the table for the next 10 years was how do we add value? Um, and now they're just dominant when it comes to marketing spend. But so uh, marketing procurement showed up, the nature of the relationship changed and procurement started asking for things. Hey, tough times we needed to cut your rates and and we we being the agencies we we saw that we were we were in a relationship and our partner in that relationship it was we saw it was asking us for something and we thought okay you need something i i got you you can have it and they would come back and ask for something else you need something you got you got it and then when we needed something and we asked uh we found that there was no give on the other end. It took us years and in full transparency, I didn't realize this fundamental shift had happened until Rory brought it to our attention to realize we thought we were in a marriage, but for the last five or 10 years, we've actually been paying for sex. And that discrepancy, this idea that one party thinks they're in a relationship, meanwhile, on the other side of the table, somebody else has intervened and said, no, this is transactional. And so we willingly atomized our, um, our, our, uh, um, kind of our, our income model into hourly rates. And we, we gave up on, um, we, you know, Michael Farmer, I, I had him on the podcast recently. He's got a great book called Madden, Madison Avenue manslaughter. He's a former, um, Bain and Boston Consulting Consultant, who's ended up specializing in advertising and ad agencies. And what he found, he spent his life's work doing, is that when the nature of the relationship and the way agencies were paid changed, agencies kept delivering at the same level, right? So they kept delivering at the same level, thinking they're in a relationship, kind of oblivious to their costs. That's another part of the problem. And the client effectively took advantage of this. Now, if you're steel manning the client side of the case. It's like, hey, man, we're just looking for efficiencies where we can find them. And just because you know we can't be held accountable for the fact that you guys are horrible negotiators and you don't know where your costs are and you're over-delivering. But this is a business where the relationship is important. The parties have to like and trust each other for the supplier here, the ad agency, to continue to deliver the great work. And it's my contention, Blair, and maybe we can get you back on, talk about this after you've had a chance to read it, but it's my contention that subscription model gets us back to the relationship, both parties. 
but we can talk about that after you've had a chance to read the book. I want to ask you about two other things that Roy talked about. We have to do this over four minutes. So, um, but I also asked Tim Williams, these two questions. So I'll ask you, he said, we have to, agencies have to move off brand issues and start working on category issues. That blew my mind. Now, Tim said, yeah, we, we've been kind of doing that, but I'm interested in your take with your customers because I know you work for a different tranche of agencies than Tim does. It, what about that? It blew my mind too. I didn't immediately see the application of it. Two days later, I realized I just had a meeting with one of our clients and they used to be a generalist agency. They specialize in a vertical. They saw this recurring problem in the vertical. They went to one of the tra two trade associations that services the vertical and they came to them with a product, a productized service idea and said, we want to launch this with you. We're going to split the cost. We're going to split the revenue. The, the trade association bought it. And in the first year, the revenue for that agency has eclipsed revenue from all other clients and it will continue to grow. That's a great example of once you're vertically specialized in particular, you can see the category problems. So you create the category solution. That's phenomenal. That, and that bleeds right into the second thing that Roy said, rather than you know the customer or the company going out and get five agencies to pitch to them. He said, agencies should be pitching to 50 or 100 or 1,000 people at a time. And that blew my mind. That yeah. It's mine too, by the way. And I guess my question for you is, how, what do we do with that idea? How do you implement it? Yeah, I think there are a few different ways to think about that idea. We probably don't have enough time to unpack them all. But again, if you think vertically and you think, all right, who's got, who's got the demand in the vertical or who speaks for the vertical? Are there trade associations, organizations, confer conferences, but trade associations in particular, where you can go to them with a category problem and you can create a solution and that way effectively working for or pitching to you know, dozens or hundreds of clients, do it through the trade association, create a product or service that you co-own. This is, I, uh, this is a great time for an agency to get into the EV market and do that. Absolutely. As, as people start to adopt EVs. Well, Blair, this has been awesome. Again, I can't thank you enough for doing this on such short notice. So uh, it was an honor to have you back on and uh, we'll definitely get you back on. Ed, what's coming up next week? Next week, Ron, we are going to talk to prolific substacker sub and economist Brian Kaplan. Looking forward to it. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, that's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. <laughs>